Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. This is WVWLP Brattleboro 100.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, airing at noon on Sundays. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the hosts and the guests and not the radio station. And um, uh, in the studio today, we have um, Kelly. Hi, I'm Kelly, and I am a third grade teacher in Brattleboro. And I'm Nina Kunimoto, and I am a local educator. Um, today, we are uh, going to, well, we interviewed Aviva Chomsky a few weeks back, but we'll be um, talking about um, U.S. intervention in Latin America um, with Aviva Chomsky, who is a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University. And she's also the author of several books. Um, Chomsky has been active in Latin American solidarity and immigrants' rights issues for over 25 years. We will also be talking about some of the creative and radical actions that Latin American people have taken over the years to work toward a better world. Um, so these are actions and movements that Americans and even people on the left or people who are activists often have very little knowledge of, but we should because they um, are actions that and movements that don't concede to the system the way it is and work within the system, but try to work toward something completely different with a um, new vision of the world. And so they have been met with an inordinate amount of force by ruling class people in their own country, but especially by the United States. Yeah. So stay tuned. So our first song. Uh, this is Calle 13, Latino America. Soy. Soy lo que dejaron, soy toda la sobra de lo que se robaron Un pueblo escondido en la cima, mi piel es de cuero Por eso aguanta cualquier clima Soy una fábrica de humo, mano de obra campesina Para tu consumo, frente de frío en el medio del verano El amor en los tiempos del cólera, mi hermano El sol que nace y el día que muere Con los mejores atardeceres Soy el desarrollo en carne viva Un discurso político sin saliva Las caras más bonitas que he conocido soy la fotografía de un desaparecido la sangre dentro de tus venas soy un pedazo de tierra que vale la pena una canasta con frijoles soy maradona contra inglaterra anotándote dos goles soy lo que sostiene mi bandera la espina dorsal del planeta en mi cordillera soy lo que me enseñó mi padre el que no quiere a su patria no quiere a su madre soy américa latina un pueblo sin pierna pero que camina oye no puedes comprar el viento, tú no puedes comprar el sol, tú no puedes comprar la lluvia, tú no puedes comprar el calor, tú no puedes comprar las nubes, tú no puedes comprar los colores, tú no puedes comprar mi alegría, tú no puedes comprar mis dolores, tú no puedes comprar el viento, tú no puedes comprar el sol, tú no puedes comprar la lluvia, tú no puedes comprar el Tengo mis dientes pa' cuando me sonrío La nieve que maquilla mis montañas Tengo el sol que me seca y la lluvia que me baña Un desierto embriagado con peyote Un trago de pulque para cantar con los coyotes Todo lo que necesito Tengo a mis pulmones respirando azul clarito La altura que sofoca 
Doy las muelas de mi boca, mascando coca El otoño con sus hojas desmayadas Los versos escritos bajo la noche estrellada Una viña repleta de uva Un cañaveral bajo el sol en Cuba Soy el mar caribe que vigila las casitas Haciendo rituales y agua bendita El viento que peina mi cabello Soy todos los santos que cuelgan de mi cuello El jugo de mi lucha no es artificial Porque el abono de mi tierra es natural Tú no puedes comprar el viento Tú no puedes comprar el sol Tú no puedes comprar la lluvia Tú no puedes comprar el calor mi alegría, tú no puedes comprar mis dolores no se puede comprar un vento no se puede comprar un sol, no se puede comprar a chuva, no se puede comprar un calor no se puede comprar las nubes no se puede comprar las cores, no se puede comprar mi alegría, no se puede comprar mis dolores no puedes comprar el sol Calle 13 with Latino America. Um, today, our topic is that Latin America and um, the U.S. Uh, intervention and violence um, in Latin America. So uh, in our first section here, we, we're going to um, play an interview with Aviva Chomsky. Um, and in this first section, she gives us the historical context of U.S. intervention. I asked her specifically uh, with Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Mexico, but we can kind of generalize um, to Latin America as a whole. And here is Aviva Chomsky being interviewed. Wars of aggression against Native populations prior to that, and 
taking of territory from native populations and then the, uh, the taking of territory from Mexico, which of course is also a taking of territory from native populations mm-hmm. because although um, colonial Spain claimed that territory and so did national Mexico, mm-hmm. um, there was very little uh, most of the territory was de facto still in native hands. Right. Um, there was very little state control, either by the Spanish colonial state or the the Mexican state over much of that territory. So it was the U.S. War of Conquest against Mexico and against the native populations, which lasted, even though the war against Mexico ended in 1848, the war against native populations lasted all the way into the 20th century. Right. Um, U.S. intervention in Central America, in particular, um, I would add Nicaragua to your list. Um, mm-hmm. Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras um, dates to the early 20th century. Um, we could trace it a little bit further back, perhaps, if we look at economic intervention, mm-hmm. because um, U.S. companies like the United Fruit Company were already claiming large swaths of Central American territory before the 20th century, starting in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. American investors are going down there and, and claiming territory. Um, and once the United Fruit Company is formed and becomes a major political power, uh, it becomes a political player in Central America as well, so that uh, even before the U.S. government is making and breaking governments and having direct military interventions in Central America, which begins <clears throat> in the 1910s, uh, the United Fruit Company is doing it even before. Okay. But it um, it is uh, after 1898, and especially in the 1910s and 1920s, that mm-hmm. we start seeing repeated U.S. military interventions in Central America, especially in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, were you going to ask uh, Why particularly Nicaragua? What was there? Uh, that that the U.S. was so interested? Um, it's primarily the ability of Central American governments or the willingness of Central American governments to comply with the, to create and comply with the conditions demanded by U.S. investors. Mm-hmm. So basically we see the U.S. intervening whenever a Central American or Caribbean, I should say, it's not only in Central America during this time, whenever a Central American or Caribbean government is not um, maintaining the conditions that U.S. investors want are their guaranteed access to their land, their guaranteed control of their labor force, low minimum wages or no minimum wages, um, uh, help from the Army to prevent worker organizing and unionization. Um, They want basically uh, dictatorships that are going to repress their own people in the interests of U.S. corporations. So we see the rise and fall of interventions basically when governments are failing to comply or when the U.S. even fears that a government is going to fail to comply um, with maintaining, creating and maintaining the what they consider to be favorable investment climate in, in those countries. Right. And so you're, I mean, after World War II, I think the Cold War was sort of a pretext for for those invasions, even though a lot yes. of it was for economic reasons. But post-war, like what are some of the reasons for the U.S. to go down in Irene? And, and right now I think there's some fear about possible invasion of Venezuela. Well, as the Cold War is winding down um, in the 1980s and 1990s, mm-hmm. um, we also see peace accords mm-hmm. um, coming about in some of the countries where leftist guerrilla movements have been fighting against right-wing authoritarian states. Um, you know, you say that the Cold War ended. In a way, the Cold War ended. Obviously, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. The socialist bloc has collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the minds of U.S. policymakers and even in the mind of the U.S. public, mm-hmm. the Cold War didn't really end. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, this this um, sort of reflexive idea that either Russia or even communism are this, 
this kind of existential threat to the United States seemed to uh, have persisted, and the end of the Cold War didn't dislodge those those that set of perceptions. And it's right. really surprising to me to hear both politicians and you know ordinary people, my students, expressing this kind of Cold War ideology as mm-hmm. if the Cold War had never ended. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, uh, what the United States is trying to take advantage of the demise of the USSR and the peace agreements in Central America um, to impose a neoliberal economic order mm-hmm. in the countries of Central America. And I would add Colombia to this, too, if you want right. to just think about Colombia for a minute. Um, U.S. intervention in Colombia also started at the end of the 19th century. They wanted to build a canal in northern Colombia. The Colombian government was asking for conditions that the U.S. investors were unwilling to comply with. And so the U.S. government basically invades Colombia and creates Panama, installs a government there that's willing to uh, offer the the investment conditions that the the United States investors want. So... um, and the U.S. Uh, U.S. corporations were also deeply involved in Colombia at the beginning of the 20th century. And as in Central America, the United States demanded and generally got um, military and political support in imposing the uh, kinds of conditions that investors wanted. And one of the classic examples from Colombian history is what's known as the, the Banana Workers Massacre of 1928, wow. where... Um, where Colombian troops massacre striking banana workers on the United Fruit Company. Wow. So, so you have the Colombian government complying with these kinds of conditions. But, um, right. Uh, and in Colombia, it was not only the banana industry, but also the oil industry. Right. Um, that, that U.S. investors are involved in. So U.S. interest right. in Colombia isn't anything new. It also has a very long history. Um, but the imposition of the neoliberal economic order, which is just sort of an updating of the very same kinds of favorable investment conditions that we've been talking about, because what does the neoliberal economic order consist of? Well, it consists of privatization mm-hmm. of state enterprises. So this means rolling back gains that workers have yeah. made um, that workers and citizens of these countries have made over the course of the 20th century mm-hmm. in um, creating state enterprises. And state enterprises basically means that instead of being controlled by foreign corporations so that the profits are simply flowing out of the country and going into the pockets of foreign shareholders, mm-hmm. um, when the state takes over key sectors of the economy in Latin America, that means that there is a semblance or a potential for democratic control over economic decision-making because if they're owned by foreigners, there's no popular input. If they're owned by the state, then depending on what kind of government is in place, but there's at least the potential for citizens to to have a voice and have a say. And the more democratic the government is, the more space there is for citizens to have a voice and a say in how enterprises are run and what's happening to the profits of those enterprises. Where are they going? Are they just going into the pockets of, of foreign shareholders, or are they going back into public services for the population? Right. And... Um, some Latin American countries have tried, right, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and in, um, and in Bolivia, that they've tried to to sort of um, nationalize some of the industries that have been formerly controlled by foreign companies. And, I mean, I think a lot of what you've explained so far is a similar, very similar reaction in, in the countries that try to do that. Um, so uh, I think what you explained really applies to a lot of the countries um, throughout history. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. And you just heard... The first segment of um, an interview with Aviva Chomsky, who is a history professor at Salem University in Salem, Massachusetts. And there you heard um, her talk about the historical context 
of U.S. intervention in Latin America. Um, what did you take away from it, Kelly? Well, I was thinking about how threatening some of the movements in Latin America have been to the U.S. government. And it's really incredible the amount of resources and force mm -hmm. that the United States has poured into repealing progress that Latin American countries have made. So when you say progress, right, um, what does that mean exactly? Well, I was just I was just thinking because I was thinking about Guatemala in particular, actually, mm -hmm. I was thinking about how in some ways, even on the left in the United States, we don't it's hard to even imagine the kind of progress that um, some of these countries have made because it has to do with challenging private property. And the movements in the United States have largely had to do with rights. And that's like, and there's a really big difference between challenging this idea of private property and um, saying that people have more rights. Right, you mean rights to property, or what do you mean by rights? Well, rights rights to private property is sort of like unspoke fundamental in Absolutely. the United States, and right. so, but there, you know, civil rights, um, mm -hmm. right to speech, right to equal pay, those kinds of things um, within a system based in private property and profit accumulation, and some of these movements in Latin America have actually challenged private property and profit accumulation Absolutely. in the interest of the well-being of the people. And I just actually want to talk about Guatemala for a minute because um, the U.S. staged a massive coup in Guatemala in 1954 that is little known in the United States, mm -hmm. but it led to a massive and bloody repression of the Guatemalan people and eventually led to the civil war in Guatemala in the 80s and 90s. Yep. And for me, the question is, what merited the level of force and repression that the U.S. poured into Guatemala? Um, so leading up to the coup was a period in Guatemala, Guatemalan history called the Democratic Spring. So the people had, they had had a repressive government for a long time. They had eventually decided and worked to force that government to um, back down. And they forced um, the president... Ubico mm -hmm. to resign. Yeah. So that's in 1944. Right. Um, and they had the first democratic election ever in Guatemala's history in 1945. And from 1945 to 1954, they had two democratically elected presidents. They had Juan Jose Arrevelo and um, Jacobo Arbenz yeah. Guzman. Yeah, and one of the mo most striking images and um, scenes, I guess, it, it was re-enacted, um, but it, I think it's, it was in the documentary called When the Mountains Tremble, where um, the wife of Jacobo Arbenz was speaking to the ambassador of the United States, and she was saying United Fruit Company owns kind of like the... Um, uh, sort of the vertical and the horizontal ownership. They owned everything from the transportation to the factories to the shipping. And so basically every part of the production in Guatemala, the profits went out back to the United States. And she was saying, you know, that that's enough. Our people are, are starving. Um, yeah, so one so. of the main actions, in fact, the main action of... Um, Arbenz was that he um, engaged in land re redistribution. Yeah. So Arrebolo had kind of started this democratic spring with he abolished these horrible vagrancy laws that forced, um, forced the indigenous population to work for large landowners. He recognized labor rights. He established social security system, rural education programs. And then um, Arbenz continued his work by um, creating something called the Decree 900 that essentially said that all lands over 600 acres that were not currently in use would be seized and redistributed amongst peasants. And so that was a huge amount of the United Fruit Company's land mm -hmm. because they had, they owned a lot of land in Guatemala that they weren't actively, actively cultivating. Right. So they said, well, we will pay you United Fruit Company and other large landowners, the tax value of your land. 
And so they were going to seize a huge amount of land from United Fruit Company, and they offered them $1.2 million for the land. And the peasants would then get low-interest loans to help pay for their plots over the years. And so when the State Department and the United Fruit Company found out about this, they were like, absolutely not. Like, this land is worth way more. They asked for $16 million. The Guatemalan government refused. By the way, the um, United States, the Secretary of State at that time was Jonathan Foster Dulles, Mm -hmm. Dulles Airport, of Dulles Airport fame. Um, He was a partner at United Fruit Company before he became the um, Secretary of State. And his brother was the director of the, Alan Dulles was the director of the CIA. And so Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles, and President Eisenhower were essentially essentially said we will not accept the seizure of United Fruit Company land and they staged a massive coup yep. and massive repression like bloody horrific repression and I would say ethnic cleansing of the indigenous population in Guatemala Absolutely. and the thing is that the land re- redistribution in some ways, we can't imagine it because it is like seizure of private property from um, wealthy companies back to the people. But it wasn't even so radical. The peasants still had to pay for it. They still had to take loans out. Um, but it was seen as communism, which right. I thought it was really interesting that Aviva um, Chomsky said that it was an existential threat to the United States, right? Um, and, and I wonder, you know, and, and thinking about why is, why would that be so important for peasants, right? Because without land, at least if you have land, you own a little bit of something you use to produce something to sell rather than just selling your labor, which you have not as much control over, um, and I mean, in a more succinct way, like you own a little bit of your means of production. Um, so I think that's a really important, um, important action to, to empower and, and to make sure that there's people can eat basically in a society. Right. And it's not just money to buy things or to participate in a system that exists. It is actual seizure of private property and saying private property isn't the highest law of the land actually meeting people's basic needs are right yeah and that's that's really important to see what's what is most important private property and protecting private property or meeting basic human needs that's what you think about and so um aviva also mentioned nicaragua and i just was going to talk briefly about that um because something because it was very similar which is that the Nicaragua, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua overthrew a, the Somoza dynasty, which is a family dynasty, um, essentially a kind of family dictatorship in Nicaragua that lasted from 1936 to 1979. And they had a similar platform to it, um, the Guatag- Guatemalan government in the, in the Democratic, during the Democratic Spring, which was land reform. Mm-hmm. Um, free unionization for all workers, supporting unions and boosting unions, both rural and urban unions, and also fixing prices for basic commodities so that the prices aren't just determined by the owners of that business and by the quote-unquote economy or speculating or all these things that they say determine prices. The government said, no, these are basic things and we are going to fix the prices. And I was thinking about that, um, that existential threat. And I think that one of the things about it is that it does create a more hostile environment for corporations to come in and extract wealth because people aren't just pawns in or indisposable to their government and, and pawns in being a labor force or being uh, an labor pool, unemployed labor pool. And the land isn't just for sale the land goes to the needs of the citizens of that country. And yeah. so it's a, it's a hostile environment for... And the, it, it yeah. you know, basically the corporations can't just go in and to make profit, right? Which would, in essence, be its existential threat. Right. And so Reagan 
was the one who secretly signed a order, an executive order, to fund the Contras, who were a guerrilla force to fight against the Sandinistas, who were eventually, by the way, pulled out. They eventually stopped funding the Contras in the late 80s because it was so unpopular in the United States. Right. Because of the Iran-Contra thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do have an effect on Latin America, us as citizens, because our government is so involved in their in their countries and their economic systems and their in their governments and the funding the contras was so unpopular they eventually pulled them out and stopped funding them okay um so we're gonna go to our next song and, and then we're going to continue our interview with avi Bachomsky. so our next song is tres veces mojado um with los tigres tigres del norte um, so the song is in Spanish, um, but the the story is about um, a Salvadoran family crossing into Guatemala and then into Mexico and then in Mexico um, being arrested and detained. And uh, recently, the United States has dumped lots of money um, into Mexico in order for Mexico to strengthen its borders um, with Guatemala so that they can stop the the migration north. Um, So this is Los Tigres del Norte with Tres Veces Mojado. Cuando me vine de mi tierra El Salvador listening to WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And today our topic is U.S. intervention in Latin America and, um, and immigration. And we are, um, uh, we're, we've interviewed Aviva Chomsky um, for our show today. And that was Los Tigres del Norte with Tres Veces Mojado. 
And um, just to follow up, the U.S. provides $320 million a year to Mexico in order for Mexico to stop immigration at its southern border. And I would like to say that I worked at the southern border, the Mexico-Guatemala border. Um, well, I was a volunteer in, a, in, the, in one of the shelters there um, for Central American migrants. And the migration... The official state immigration agency is very strong there, and the migrants know it. And so I knew countless migrants who would leave the shelter and were seized by immigration on the streets. And immigration knew the um, path they took from the Guatemalan border to the shelter. It was 60 kilometers they had to walk, and unless they could afford a bus after they crossed the border. And so I also knew many people who, because they were running from immigration, who was actually chasing them, they um, had to abandon all their things. So their, their identification, their passports, um, their everything, their money, their clothes, their water, their food. Yeah. yeah. So in the second segment of our interview with Aviva Chomsky, she is going to talk to us about immigration in the United to the United States from Latin America. Without much historical understanding that it's just a problem, it's here, deal with it. And so could you give us a little history of so the current immigration quote crisis from this side of the border and then kind of get to like why are there so many people crossing the border like as a result of NAFTA and, and things like that. So, you know, when we talk about an immigration crisis, mm-hmm. um, I do think people generally have in mind that the idea, the false idea that immigration is creating a crisis for American society. Mm-hmm. But I would actually turn your question around and say that the immigration crisis, the crisis is the crisis that is happening in Mexico and Central America. It's the crisis of people being forced to leave their homes, Mm -hmm. people who do not want to leave their homes, Mm -hmm. but because of economic, political um, conditions, because of violence, both state-sponsored and violence, are being forced out of their homes. To me, that's where the crisis lies. The Mm -hmm. crisis is not a crisis for the United States. It's a crisis for the immigrants. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important to keep in mind. uh, David Bacon wrote a wonderful book in which he described today's immigrants from Mexico as refugees of NAFTA, mm-hmm. uh, people who are fleeing from the economic crisis and political uh, crisis and crisis of violence caused by NAFTA, caused by the North American Free Trade Agreement. And again, I think we tend to think about NAFTA in terms of its impact on the United States and on U.S. workers. But if we think about the impact that NAFTA has had in Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, the principal victims of NAFTA in Mexico have been small corn farmers Mm -hmm. from southern Mexico, whose livelihoods were completely undermined by the... uh, by the structural changes that are forced on Mexico. One, in undercutting state support for small farmers, Mm -hmm. and two, in allowing the influx of cheap subsidized corn from the United States. So the the small peasant corn farming sector was completely undermined by NAFTA, and that's why we see migration in the 1990s and 2000s, huge migration out of regions of Mexico that had never before sent migrants Mm -hmm. to the United States. Um, In the 1990s and 2000s, migration from Mexico became overwhelmingly indigenous from regions of southern Mexico Mm -hmm. where people would have never left their homes if it hadn't been for the crisis caused by NAFTA. In Central America, um, we're seeing a sort of a, a a complementary crisis that is political, it's economic, and it's violent, all of which are caused by the combination of the U.S. wars in Central America and the U.S.-sponsored neoliberalization of Central America's economies in the 1990s and 2000s. And I should also just mention that, in fact, immigration from Mexico has greatly slowed and, in fact, is at net zero or less Mm -hmm. now. 
there's still more immigrants coming in from Central America than there are leaving, but in terms of immigration from Mexico, uh, the tide has shifted. Mm. So when we talk about immigration and the crises, we're really talking about large-scale structural issues. Um, and I think there are large-scale structural issues that we need to think about solving, but as long as we conceptualize immigration as a crisis for the United States, mm -hmm. we're totally missing the point. Mm -hmm. Ice raids and the wall. Um, can you explain how those types of things here is useful to capitalism? Like, Who wants the crackdowns and who benefits from it? And if you could also explain a little bit about how what happens to low-wage workers when there's a crackdown on undocumented workers? Okay, um, so this is a little bit complicated, but mm -hmm. I will explain it. Um, it seems contradictory mm -hmm. because right. capital relies on low-wage mm -hmm. undocumented workers. Mm -hmm. So why this push to deport low-wage mm -hmm. undocumented workers? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, not, capital is not just one monolith. There are certain mm. sectors of capitalists who benefit greatly mm -hmm. um, directly from undocumented migrant workers, mm -hmm. especially, for example, in the agricultural sector, where probably more than half of, of workers in the agricultural sector are documented migrants. Mm -hmm. And we've seen what's happened in states like Alabama and Georgia yeah. when state legislation has led to an outflow of undocumented immigrants, right. and farms are not able to harvest their food, and mm -hmm. agricultural interests are not benefiting mm -hmm. from this anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-immigrant legislation and mm -hmm. climate that's being created in those states. However, um, employers can also benefit from the the status quo of undocumentedness and large numbers of undocumented workers. Mm -hmm. um, when workers are undocumented, they're more exploitable because they're afraid to demand their rights. Mm -hmm. um, when there are undocumented workers, that makes all workers more exploitable because mm -hmm. employers can threaten all workers um, with re being replaced by more vulnerable, more exploitable workers. That is, any in general works to the benefit of employers who are able to play different groups of workers off against each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also kind of expand this into the larger society. That is, we're living through um, the, a growth of inequality unprecedented mm -hmm. in U.S. history under conditions of prosperity. The the, um, the increases in inequality, mm -hmm. not that we've never been unequal before, but right. the, the, the particular direction we're going right now at this level of prosperity is unprecedented, mm -hmm. um, and the speed in which we're going in this direction. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people are very worried and very angry about this, and undocumented immigrants make a convenient scapegoat right. to to distract people's attention from the actual changes that are happening in the economy towards blaming the worst, the, the most exploited victims of, of, this, of this inequality. And this is a very well-known phenomenon that, that people in power have utilized for centuries, right? Welcome back to WVEW and Indigo Radio at 107.7 FM. And today we're interviewing Aviva Chomsky and we're talking about Latin America and U.S. intervention in Latin America. So Nina, earlier you and I were talking about uh, whether or not, about the difference between um, opposing immigration and opposing immigrants Yeah, and that conversation. So, and thinking about... Um, how I would like to live in a world where people weren't forced yeah. to immigrate, immigrate yeah. from their homes. So why are they forced to immigrate from their homes? Well, I mean, there's so many reasons now, right? I mean, Mexico, you can specifically look at NAFTA. Yeah. But I also think about um, people who are displaced because of climate change, Absolutely. which is um, completely human caused, and it's caused by people in the first world who are not forced to, um, who are not displaced by climate change for the most part. And also war, mm -hmm. wars um, of conquest and um, 
imperialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many reasons. And s- yeah, go ahead. It, can you could you sort of point to an, an underlying cause for all of these things like NAFTA and wars and climate change? Well, I think at this particular moment in history, um, it's based on a, a system that's um, underlying goal is profit maximization. And of course we can look back at history and there's been other systems and people have also been displaced because of those systems. And, but here we are right now in this moment and we have the technology for most people to be able to stay in the places where they live, barring even if there's a drought, you know, we have the technology to assist them um, and to get them what they need. But the fact is that certain people are affected much more strongly and deeply by these human-made disasters and inequities that certain groups of people are forced into mass migrations. Who are those certain people? I mean, it largely affects poor and indigenous people mm-hmm. all over the world. It affects more um, the global south, the countries that are not sort of the headquarters of capitalist imperialism, like Europe and the United States. And in the United States, people of color and people in right. poverty as well. Yeah. 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 But then also to be on the side of the migrants yeah. um, as exactly. human beings. Yeah. I mean, they're coming here most of the time not necessarily because they want to. I don't think they want to leave where their home is. It's that they have to because NAFTA has economically displaced them. And, I mean, they need to eat. They need to figure out where to get their food from. They can't get it from where they, their home. So they come to the next best possible option, which is to travel north. And even if that means risking their life across the desert and paying thousands of dollars to coyotes. Yeah. Let's move on to the next part of our um, interview after this song break. So first we will have, um, this is Climbing Poetry's Heart-Led Rebellion. When you walk, let your heart lead the way. Por más guerra que nos echen, más golpe que nos peguen, más abierta está esta mente para combatir la destrucción, aunque nos llenen de mentira. Con hambre queda el alma silenciosa la violencia, por eso es que se canta, que sigan disparando el movimiento no se mata. Nacimos en la noche, crecimos en la palma, somos humo de la boca de un ancestro va flotando, somos manos sanadoras, sonrisas escondidas donde balas hacen sonas. Somos peyotes, somos coyotes, somos estrellas. Somos tierra sin bandera, somos máquina, somos lágrimas We are beautiful, we're irrefutable, we are omnipotent We're militant, resilient, we're autonomous We are the consequence, we are consciousness We are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us in all Today's programming is brought to you in part by The Shoe Tree Located in downtown Brattleboro since 1990 The Shoe Tree is a family-owned store that provides quality comfort footwear for men and women who value their feet. They offer a wide selection of shoes, boots, sandals, slippers, socks, and orthotics. You can visit them at 135 Main Street, online at shoetreevermont.com, on Facebook, or call 802-254-8515. WVW thanks The Shoe Tree for their support of this station. And you're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro. So we are going to quickly move into the last segment of our interview with Aviva Chomsky on Latin America, where she talks about resistance in Latin America and also um, resistance here in the United States. Thing um, which I always ask is the resistance movement. Um, Can you tell us more about resistance in Central and Latin America against these economic forces um, and against U.S. intervention, and what can we learn from them? 
Um, well, of course, all of Latin America has a very long history of resistance to U.S. interventions yeah. um, because Latin America has such a long history of U.S. interventions. And yeah. um, I think one of the things that's notable in Latin America is a much higher level of consciousness about how the global economy and how global politics work mm-hmm. than we tend to see in the United States. That is, in the United States, we tend to see quo as somehow, somehow, I wouldn't say necessarily God-given because not everybody sees it in religious terms, mm-hmm. but just like this is just the norm, this is just the way things are, rather than questioning why are things this way. Mm-hmm. I think in Latin America, it's much more common for people to to not only recognize the injustice of the global economic order, but but understand or seek to understand the historical roots mm-hmm. of these injustices. And I think Latin America's experience of colonization and then recolonization and repeated recolonization uh, leads to a kind of a, a baseline of understanding about the, the perils of foreign domination and extractivism and um, the, the forces that have gone into creating Latin America's exploited position in the global economic order. So I, mean, I think we see uh, resistance at all levels of society. One of the things that always really strikes me is mm-hmm. I, I, I do work in a region of northern Colombia mm-hmm. where um, there's a very large coal mine, mm-hmm. used to be owned by Exxon, the U.S. company, but now it's owned by a consortium of European companies mm-hmm. that extracts coal and exports it all over the world. It's one of the largest open pit coal mines in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in an extremely poor region, extremely marginalized region, mm-hmm. State services are practically absent. There are hardly any schools. The illiteracy rate is 65%. Mm-hmm. Um, people are dying from lack of water, literally from malnutrition and dehydration because mm-hmm. there are just no state services in, right. in this region. It's a very dry and arid, just very impoverished uh-huh. region. Um, and people are also powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, whenever I am there, organizing. They're mm-hmm. talking about what can we do? We're going to have a general strike. We're going to protest. We're going to be in the streets. This is constant level of mobilization mm-hmm. and protest and organization. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody ever sits back and says, oh, well, it's all too big and complicated. There's nothing we can do about it. Right. When I come back to the United States and I talk um, to audiences about what's happening in this region, the general response I get is, oh, it's terrible, but it's so, all so big and complicated. There's nothing mm-hmm. we can do about it. So I think people's sense of empowerment and disempowerment is in uh, direct direct disproportion to their actual amount of power. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, people in the United States have a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of power to influence the way the world is going, mm-hmm. um, but they feel disempowered. And people in this region in Colombia who uh, on the surface would say to have so so little access to the centers of global power, yet they, they don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. They have to mobilize, and right. so they do. Threatens their existence in many ways. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest, aside from, like, educating oneself, like, what are some things that, Americans or U.S. citizens can do to affect change in, 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 in Latin America or in Central America? Well, I guess I would say that it's not really our job to try to bring about change in Latin America or mm-hmm. Central America. It's mm-hmm. our job to try to bring about change here. Yeah. And um, if we can bring about change here, that's mm-hmm. going to allow people elsewhere in the world to bring about change in their own countries. Um, I think there are just so many absolutely crucial that we need to be working to change U.S. policy on right now. It's hard to even start enumerating them. But rather than getting paralyzed by the fact that there are so many issues, we have to choose something and start working on it. Um, I mean, to me, two of the most absolutely crucial issues right now are war and climate change, Mm -hmm. Um, the most terrifying issues in terms of just the global level of destruction that our country is in the process of causing or or poised to cause. I mean, both 
in the process of causing and poised to cause. We have to stop those things. And I wish there were massive national mobilization to stop yeah. those things. Yeah. There isn't, but we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. And that was Aviva Chomsky um, interviewed a few weeks back by Nina Kunimoto. And you are listening to Indigo Radio on WBEWLP 107.7 FM. And today's topic is um, U.S. intervention in Latin America. And in that clip, we talked about resistance. And in fact, um, Kelly's going to read us a really interesting quote um, by Aviva Chomsky in regards to um, resistance in the U.S. Yeah, so Nina, you actually found this quote, but it does, it does really speak to me and um, about what we see here in terms of uh, what we think of as a movement. And I think Aviva Chomsky says it best, so I'm just going to read it. Over the years, I've come to see more and more of what Adolf Reed calls posing as politics. Rather than organizing for change, individuals seek to enact a statement about their own righteousness. They may boycott certain products, refuse to eat certain foods, or they may show up to marches or rallies whose only purpose is to demonstrate the moral superiority of the participants. White people may loudly claim that they recognize their privilege or declare themselves allies of people of color or other marginalized groups. People may declare their communities no place for hate. Or they may show up at countermarches to, quote, stand up to white nationalists, white nationalists or Nazis, neo-Nazis. All of these types of, quote, activism emphasize self-improvement or self-expression rather than seeking concrete change in society or policy. They are deeply and deliberately apolitical in the sense that they do not seek to address issues of power, resources, decision-making, or how to bring about change. Yeah, and in the next paragraph, she also says that a lot of protesting in the U.S. doesn't connect to the larger picture of exploitation and of capitalism and, and even of, she use, deliberately uses the word mobilizing, I think, um, quite deliberately rather than protesting um, in order to, to think of, of the larger movement. And I mean, the other thing that, that I, I think is lacking in the United States is exposure to particularly Latin American resistance um, so, for example, there, there are two that I can think of, three, really, more than three, but we're going to just mention two because we've talked about the Zapatistas on our show before, but MST, which is a Brazil's landless uh, workers' movement, right, um, that started in 1984 where landless um, people decided to occupy lands that were not being used but were owned by the wealthy, and they suffered all kinds of violent consequences for it. But, you know, much like the Zapatistas, they they collectivized and they provided education um, because most of them were poor and illiterate. Um, they provided education for amongst each other. And so, again, like looking at different ways to... Um, to combat oppression and, and capitalism. And, and another really good um, resistance um, was the uh, in Bolivia and Cochabamba when the citizens were, were the water was taken over by Bechtel. And, uh, and so basically water was privatized and it was around two, 2000 or 2001 that Bechtel went in and privatized the water and people basically couldn't afford the water and the people resisted by basically tapping the water and Bechtel comes in and and they were collecting rainwater and Bechtel says well we own the rainwater and so the people just resisted and and they won. The people won against a corporation. They kicked them out. And today, um, they have a community-controlled water um, in that part of Bolivia. And so. again, all of this resistance is about collectivizing and reseizing private property. Yeah. And so it's not about what we have here is this economy of rights. And also, what Aviva said, this... Um, um, self-expression that we, we have uh, those pink hats and um, the right t-shirts and the right buttons and we say the right things and so we are righteous um, right. but I guess the 
my final thought is that uh, we need to get a little more creative and learn from the people of Latin America who've been doing this work for a long time. And um, that brings us to the end of our show. And we would really like to thank Aviva Chomsky for taking the time to speak with us um, and sharing her knowledge with us. And um, so in the studio today is Kelly Juno. And Nina, and thanks for joining us. Join us every Sunday at noon on uh, 107.7 Indigo Radio. This is Eugene Newman, DJ of No Boundaries.